Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Monica Lozano, President and CEO of the College Futures Foundation and your moderator for the program. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club series on ethics and accountability, underwritten by the Travers Family Foundation. And later on, in fact, we'll hear from two UC Berkeley undergraduate students who are part of our Travers Fellowship Program. The Commonwealth Club would like to thank the audience for its support. And if you wish to make a donation, please text the word donate to 415-329-4231. And today I am delighted to talk with Dr. Michael V. Drake, MD, the new president of the University of California. Dr. Drake was appointed the 21st president of the University of California this past summer. He oversees UC's world-renowned system of 10 campuses, five medical centers, three national labs, more than 280,000 students and 230,000 faculty and staff, making it the third largest employer in the state in addition to what many consider to be the premier public research university in the country. Prior to his appointment, he served as president of The Ohio State University for six years, and before that served in several roles at the University of California, including nine as chancellor of UC Irvine and five years as the system-wide vice president for health affairs. Dr. Drake received his AB from Stanford University and his residency, MD, and fellowship training in ophthalmology at UCSF. He subsequently spent more than two decades on the faculty of the UCSF School of Medicine. During his years as chancellor at UC Irvine, the campus rose to join the top 10 public universities in US News and World Report's annual list, and the four-year graduation rates increased by more than 18%, while undergraduate enrollment and diversity also increased significantly. So for purposes of full disclosure, I wanna mention that I served on the Board of Regents of the University of California for 15 years, and President Drake and I overlapped for almost the entire time. So today I'm pleased to welcome back to California, to the Commonwealth Club, this prominent academic leader the day after the election for a timely discussion of the challenges facing public higher education and the challenges facing our nation more broadly. So welcome, President Drake. It's good to see you again. Wonderful to see you, Monica. Thank you. So I want to talk about, um, you had great success when you were at the Ohio State University. You increased enrollments, increased diversity, brought in more research dollars. But there was something about this particular opportunity that compelled you to come back, not just to California, but to the University of California under what everybody would say are probably the most challenging times in its history. And, and I wanna ask you about that decision to come back, but I also wanna think about um, leading during times of crisis. And that must've been something that called to you also because as we said, the challenges facing the UC are just tremendous right now. So what made you come back and, and talk to us about um, leading through these difficult moments? Well, thank you. Uh, and you had two questions, and so I'll address uh, both of them. The, the first is that my wife and I were uh, Californians. So we, we grew up here, as you mentioned. We, we met in college. You mentioned that I was in college near here, and then she went to the law school at Berkeley when I was in medical school, and so we raised our family here, and we have always felt, like our families were here, we felt like Californians, so we always were planning in some way to at least spend some part of the next phase of our lives uh, reconnecting with California, so that was always in the, in the offing. We weren't planning on doing something quite this intense, I think. Uh, we thought about another phase of, of life. But, but honestly, during the time of the, the initial lockdown, when we were dealing with COVID, um, I'd been working quite intensively with The Ohio State University for all of those years. During the time of the lockdown, it just seemed like this wasn't a time to, to be on the sidelines, that 
that we really needed all hands on deck. And if uh, in discussing with the committee the the opportunity to come back, if there was something that we could contribute to this effort, this seemed like a time for all of us to be doing our best to help us get through this extraordinarily challenging time in our in our country's history. And, uh, and and that was compelling. That was one thing. Let me say the other thing that was really compelling is that with the life of uh, being at UCSF and uh, being a, at the office of the president in a different role a couple of decades ago, being a chancellor for many years, we had the opportunity to meet many wonderful people. And the chance to come and to work again with uh, those people on this great enterprise was uh, really something that was uh, extraordinarily compelling. So that so there were great draws uh, in in that realm. So how has it been um, when you when you mentioned meeting wonderful people? You're not able to physically meet with anybody right now. So how has it been in terms of acclimating to the institution, getting to know the enterprise? It's obviously changed six years later. So how are you spending your time actually familiarizing yourself with both the the people and the issues of the university? Yes, this is a strange uh, time for, for all of us. It's a time unlike any time any of us have lived with. And I, and I can say that without fear of contradiction. I mean, it's just we've not ever had a time like this in our lives. And uh, so that has been unsettling, I think, for everyone. And I've actually been saying to colleagues that we, we work, it can be challenging and stressful and hard. You know, it takes these are we, we deal with real problems and those things can uh, require energy from us we often would receive energy, get energy back from the people that we're working with. The, 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 the joy of being with people and working on things together really is enabling and, and empowering. Now, you know, we, we have a lot of, the, we have the problems to deal with. We don't get the, the, the payback and uh, the feedback, positive feedback of being with people. So that really is stressful, I think, for all of us. It's stressful for our faculty. It's stressful for our students. It's stressful for our, our staff. We meet on, like I'm sure you do, and many others. We're on Zoom all day, and uh, and so the people are there. But it really, we really do miss the human connection. What we do is try to uh, put extra intention to doing our best work in in that realm. But I will say, generally, it is. Um, you know, I noticed the the. I miss the fact that we're not able to be together. I'm in my normal office, uh, where I was many times as vice president, and a few feet away from where I met uh, hundreds of times in the conference room, there's no one else on the floor. It's a strange, uh, it's a strange thing. Uh, I will say, though, that the real resolve of the people in the community, the resolve of, of our colleagues, is, uh, uh, brings great energy to our meetings. And actually, we're making great progress even under these difficult circumstances. So I'm, I'm already getting lots of questions in the chat, but I want to spend a few minutes talking about the impact of, of the pandemic um, on the operations of the university, um, obviously campuses were restricted in terms of having students um, on site. And talk to us about the way in which you're making decisions regarding um, the impact of COVID on operations. And then there's a, a question about um, what you foresee in terms of spring enrollments. Right. Well, I'd say uh, first, there, there really is the impact. I'll just, if I may back up a little bit to the spring, uh, I teach a freshman seminar. I've been teaching a freshman seminar for years. I taught it when I was at UC Irvine. I taught the freshman seminar when I was at the Ohio State University. And and I really noticed uh, the students I'd gotten to know in the first part of the semester, and then we were online and, and separate. And we had our first Zoom, and I remember how happy I was to see them all. And they seemed happy to be there. And we, we missed each other. And, and I could actually feel great to have a connection, great to see people and be able to talk with them in this format, but but we missed each other and the energy of being together. And so I know that broadly, we would love very much to be able to bring people back together uh, as, as soon and as we can appropriately, but we want to make sure we do that in a safe fashion. So we've been very thoughtful about repopulating the campuses in a, a slow and even fashion measuring. We had a meeting today with the chancellors to look at the COVID positivity rates on campus. And we've been uh, doing, we've done tens of thousands of tests across the, the hundreds of thousands by now across the system. And uh, so bringing people back, repopulating the campus, but doing it in a safe and effective way is something that's always been paramount in, in our planning. I will say that we, on the campuses, I'm gonna to get to your question, but I will say that on the campuses, 
that we've been pleased with the positivity rates with our students living in the dorms. Almost all of our classes are virtual. Almost all the classes now are online. And, and that's certainly going to be for the, this time. And I say that the, the overwhelming majority of classes will be online starting in, in January as well. But we have uh, from several hundred to a few thousand students living on campus, uh, socially distancing, using uh, non-pharmaceutical uh, uh, methods of uh, protecting themselves, masks, hand washing, social distancing, so um, the non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions. And uh, we, th that experience has worked well. The positivity rates on the campuses are dramatically lower than the positivity rates in the surrounding communities. And we're watching that very carefully. And as we're able to maintain that, it will allow us, we believe, to have more students more of those students who wish to come back to campus to live, even though the classes are largely remote, will be able to increase the number of students on campuses, uh, uh, we hope, in the, the winter and spring. We'll know more about that really in a few weeks. The, the country is experiencing a surge. Uh, we have to see how we do with this surge, but, but the hope will be that we'll be able to maintain this great differential between the students who are living on campus safely and communities, even those relatively safe communities where the, the, the students have lower positivity rates. So that's just something that's kind of looking forward. Your, your question about the impact uh, broadly on operations, we've had uh, significant impacts in, in many ways. We've had uh, obviously a state budget uh, reduction. We've had uh, uh, losses in our health system because we were not able to do uh, elective procedures in the, in the springtime. Much of that has been recovered now, so that's, that's going better. We have very uh, significant losses in our auxiliaries. We have you know, we, thousands of students, tens of thousands of students live with us on campus, and, there are, um, and, and, and now those, that those students are not there. Some are, but not nearly as many as we normally would have. There's a great delta. Our, uh, our costs haven't gone down uh, uh, nearly as much, but the, you know, with no one living there, there's no, um, no revenue. And, and so the campuses have had to absorb that. That's been hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, actually, that had to be refunded in the springtime and, and then not received here in the fall. And so the, we've gone through uh, the... A, a real effort of belt tightening and avoidance of costs and a whole series of other things to try to help our balances to our budgets to balance but it's it's a there's quite a bit of stress uh, stress on the system so you mentioned a number of things that I want to get um, into the the virtual teaching and learning the issues of um, the impact of the budget but before I get to that I was thinking about your your comments about um, the uh, positivity rates and it seems to me that, at least for our audience, it might be interesting for them to hear about the role that our medical enterprise is playing in terms of testing, tracing, pursuing a vaccine. And it just feels that this is where UC really matters. Um, and it is about these grand challenges that, that, that face humanity, where we can actually bring the best of our research um, and medical facilities to bear. So, Yes. Maybe you could describe a little bit about what's happening in that realm. Well, a big, big topic. Uh, I would say that our our health system, uh, UC Health, be was began to be focused on the the pandemic really in January, uh, before there were cases here in the United States, uh, to look at the public health challenge that might uh, come to us. This we've seen things in the past, nothing quite like this, but we had SARS years ago, we had uh, Zika, we have had, had other um, infectious uh, diseases that were arising overseas that we expected or feared might come to our shores. And so that kind of planning uh, uh, began really in January, planning and discussions. By early March, when there began to be cases uh, here, then our health system really uh, sprung to life. And I would say that Starting then, it's really been seven days a week for the leaders of our hospitals, for our clinicians, for our nurses, for our other um, uh, critical personnel, our, our, uh, the, the essential personnel that we have uh, driving and doing food service, all the things that require hospitals to work have been going really full tilt, tilt since the beginning of, of March. And we've learned a lot. We are, we are uh, better able to treat patients now because we've seen what works with this novel disease. Remember, a, a disease that no one had ever seen before uh, uh, this uh, six, eight months ago now. But we've learned to do uh, a good job there uh, to try to help uh, uh, treat people effectively when they come to our hospitals and to our ICUs. 
Uh, in, in addition to that, we've been working with public health, with county health, with state health officials, so that testing and contact tracing where appropriate has been done. Our, our universities are doing testing for the communities of patients that they serve and also have, in many cases, uh, uh, doing other uh, testing for local entities, other educational institutions, et cetera. So we've been doing our, our best to ramp up testing and be a good source of that. And then we have, uh, at this moment, I mean, in our, so at this moment, while we're speaking, there are people taking care of patients in our intensive care units, on our wards. At this moment, while we're speaking, there are people in our laboratories working on developing vaccines and also working on developing antivirals and other treatments to be able to do a better job of taking care of our patients. And that's a 24-7, uh, 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 365 uh, effort really for us. And uh, it will continue throughout this, this, the winter and into the spring. We're gonna, this is going to be with us for a while. Yeah, I just, um, I wanted to, to stress, this is when the UC makes us proud. It, it plays such an important role in terms of dealing with these um, large scale global issues like this particular pandemic. And there is a question from the audience that asks um, whether or not there's other particular issues um, global climate change, et cetera, that you intend to prioritize um, during your presidency? Well, let me say that, that the uh, uh, COVID-19 is an extraordinarily uh, pressing issue for us on a daily basis now, and, and so we're, we are working on that actively. And really, every time I, I, I have a chance, I want to make sure that I, I thank and acknowledge the, our healthcare workers who've done such an incredible job against uh, putting themselves at risk. Uh, particularly at the beginning when we didn't know what this was, but putting themselves at risk in order to, in order to save the lives of strangers. Uh, it's the work that they do every day, but it's come into uh, a, a bright focus over these last several months, and we really do thank them um, with all our hearts and want to acknowledge that. And we, uh, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic didn't arrive in a perfect and completely mannered world. We have other issues that were with us in, in uh, December and January of last year that are, remain with us now. The threat of climate change, uh, I see as an existential threat to, to humankind and one where we as a system, we feel a, a responsibility to, uh, to really be at the forefront of helping society to deal with this uh, great uh, threat to humanity. And so we have a multitude of things that we are uh, working on to try to uh, do our best to uh, both be good citizens in addressing climate change within our own facilities and across our own university, but also collaborate with others uh, to uh, stimulate research and to uh, try to address this. So we, for me, it's one of my top priorities. We as the University of California, really, you mentioned the size and scope of the university. There are few institutions that can do as much as we can, who can participate um, uh, at the way that we can in trying to find the solutions to these uh, challenging problems. And so we want to make sure that we're fully in and uh, doing the best that we can. Well, we appreciate that, especially in California with the wildfires and, and everything that, you know, climate change is real and, and we're experiencing it every day in this state. So let's go back to the um, operational impacts of the pandemic, if you don't mind. Um, you mentioned um, virtual instruction, distance learning, distance teaching, how difficult that was to actually convert all your courses to online. One of the questions I have for you, President Drake, is, is there anything out of this moment that is durable in terms of how you think about um, the educational uh, and academic activity of the university? What do you see as the role of online and or hybrid education? And then if you can also address the concerns people have with regards to equity and um, issues of access, especially for low-income first-generation students of color that are frankly suffering through um, a lot of hardship right now. Yes, yeah, so a couple of things. Uh, first, as you mentioned, uh, the, the rapid shift that we went, uh, uh, in, in which we went from our normal method of instruction to fully online uh, last spring. So I really want to give uh, kudos to the faculty, the amazing resilience of the faculty and being able to shift uh, uh, thousands and thousands of courses immediately uh, to an online format in a way that was able to deliver educational content to students to allow them to continue to make progress toward their degrees. And I also want to thank the students for their resiliency and being able to adapt 
to an old, a whole new way of learning for many of them. And um, under, as you've mentioned, many unequal circumstances, our students have done an incredible job. So our, so our faculty on the one hand and our students on the other have really worked together to continue to uh, create and protect an educational pathway forward. That, that's been uh, very important. Things that we learned, we've been for uh, really 10, 15 years, moving to more and more courses uh, online or more and more parts of courses that, that are taught online. My own course was a seminar, so we would meet together once a week, but all of the materials were delivered to the students in electronic format for years. So there were no books, no papers, um, uh, nothing to buy. They used an iPad and got the information that way, and, and I communicated with them that way. And so we were quite used to the uh, using uh, technology to enhance the, our, our instruction. And I would say also um, at my last university, we had a higher percentage of students, even though they were living on campus and taking most of their courses in a traditional way, a high percentage of students, about 40% on a given, uh, a given semester, were taking at least one class online uh, to help uh, smooth their, their pathway or passageway through the educational curriculum. So I, I think that here at the University of California, we're gonna be doing have more online and technology enhanced opportunities for our students um, as they move forward. We probably got there a little more rapidly than we would have because of the necessity as the mother invention. And uh, But I think that that's gonna stay. I, I think that we had capacity to have more online instruction available. And, and this allowed us to, uh, I think, ramp that up a little more quickly than had we not been in a position where that was uh, as necessary. I'll say you, we mentioned the health system and all of the things that we're doing, you know, we went to, um, only uh, uh, emergent and, uh, and and serious issue uh, care in the springtime. We uh, elective surgery and other things were put on a, uh, a back burner for a while. But when we did that, we we stopped seeing patients in the clinic, but went to telemedicine. And the overwhelming majority of the visits that we did, um, orders of magnitude more visits in, in telemedicine in April than would have been the case in February. Those numbers stayed high through April and May, and then began to decrease as we started seeing more patients back in the clinic. But we didn't take the telemedicine uh, visits down to anywhere near where they'd been before. So now we're still seeing tens of thousands of telemedicine visits a month. And I think that that will be a permanent uh, change in the way that we offer visits. So, so actually more clinic visits in October than would have been the case in October of the year before. A big slice of that would have been telemedicine visits that would have been tens of thousands in October uh, of, of 2020, and only a handful really in October of 2019. So some, some of those changes I think are going to be uh, a permanent acceleration to the future. There's a, a question from the audience that asks whether or not you anticipate campus life, getting back to some sense of normalcy, um, when would that be? And do you think it's gonna be later than 2021? Well, I'm hopeful, uh, you know, I, I, I can't predict the future. Uh, I'm. Uh, I. I love campus life. I. You know. I've been at universities for my life, and I realize what a what what a privilege it is. I. I really remember talking to my students last spring, and uh, and seeing them and asking them how they were doing, and they just really wanted to get back to to school. They wanted to get back to campus, and you know they love everything that happens. They really love being with each other and the experience of the the. the social and political growth that happens in, in the campus environment is something that's a special time that, you know, you and I remember those times from our lives um, a few years ago, and our students love that today. So we would really look toward getting back to uh, that, something of, of a normal uh, residential campus experience as we can. To be honest, and in the same way that we look forward to all the other things that we love so much about being people in society, meeting friends and family, and spending time together, going to restaurants and movies and whatever we were doing, um, um, uh, going to ball games and concerts, all of those things. Those are the things that were the, the things we looked forward to and the things that were fun. And we put them all on uh, on hold. My wife and I have grandchildren. Uh, just my favorite thing in the world, always. I, my life was really planned around when we could spend time with the grandchildren. Uh, now we don't see them, you know, and uh, so that's really heartbreaking. And uh, in that way for many, many uh, people. So we're all uh, really doing everything we can to get back to being able to see each other safely. And when that will be will depend on a couple of things. One, uh, when a safe and effective vaccine can arrive and be distributed 
that will take time no matter what. If it were available today, we'd still be months and months before it could be uh, distributed uh, broadly enough to make things safe. So that really takes us well into next year before that would be our our, our pathway back. But the sooner the better, and my fingers are crossed that we are able to get something that comes out uh, shortly. Our own behavior now, though, the things I mentioned, the so-called NPIs, the uh, wearing masks, uh, hand washing and social distancing, uh, those things are incredibly important now. In fact, in m many public health ex experts say that they are as preventative and as protective as a vaccine. Uh, and, uh, and so the more of us that do that today, the lower the incidence of the virus will be, the safer our communities will be. We get into a positive feedback loop of fewer and fewer people that can be infectious and protecting ourselves. So I think that the, the more that all of us can do everything we can now to protect ourselves and protect our communities by wearing masks and washing hands and maintaining social distance, the healthier our communities will, will be over this winter and into the spring. Another thing that we can all do now is get flu vaccines. Uh, as you know, the flu symptoms and COVID-19 symptoms are very similar. Um, COVID-19, much worse, and many more people hospitalized with COVID-19. But every year, um, we have hundreds of people in California hospitalized with the flu. And with the impact that we fear may come from uh, surges over the winter, we want to make sure that we don't have diseases masquerading as COVID-19 that um, divert the energy and care of the healthcare system or have our hospital beds uh, taken up by diseases that we can help to prevent with the vaccine like the, the flu. So I, I've, got, I've had my flu vaccine. I hope you've had yours. And uh, okay, good. Um, I trusted you. And, um, uh, and I just would say that's um, a very important thing that we can all do now to make November and December and January and February as safe as possible. And the more we do that, the sooner we'll get back to being able to spend time together. Well, I read that um, you had instructed, if, if, if I'm correct, um, for anybody who either resides or is educated or works at a UC facility um, to, to get the flu vaccine or flu shot. Um, there's a, a question also from the audience that just came in, um, President Drake, that asks, what advice do you have for students to stay motivated um, during this prolonged period of time? You know, I've been reading books of like the Blitz, Blitzkrieg in the Second World War to uh, uh, get a feeling of how people, when they find themselves under kind of a, uh, a broad societal siege, how people move forward through those, those times. And I think there are a couple of things that have worked uh, for us. For, for us throughout uh, history. One is to take a wide angle view. You know, the things that are in front of us right today are challenging and a drag. And I wish that they would stop and I can't make them stop. But that's, that, that's frustrating. We take a step back and know that we as a, a country, we as uh, people, we as families have made it through tough times in the past. And that if we stick with it uh, day by day, step by step, we will make it through. And, um, you know, it's all we have, it's all we can do, but it's what we must do really to uh, uh, to move forward. So I think just taking a step back and remember that many people in the world have dealt with many uh, very serious things that people today who are living through famine and warfare and other things that are uh, threatening their very existence on a daily basis. And, and, and what human beings seem to be able to do is to take a step back, to take the long view and to keep walking, put one foot in front of the other and, and move forward. And so I encourage that. I believe it's, although it's a, um, a facsimile of a connection, I think that doing Zoom calls and phone calls and FaceTime and other things with friends and family, uh, all of whom are going through this in different ways, that's a, an extremely important thing to do, more important uh, the, uh, than ever. And if I may just say for us, you know, we're, our family is distributed across this country and in other places, and we've been able to do things like have birthday parties where there are people from multiple countries uh, together, which wouldn't have been the case normally. Um, we um, at Passover, we had many different members of our uh, of, of our family who were on multiple continents, uh, being able to spend time together, and and so those kinds of things are available using technology. They're a substitute for what we really would like to be able to do, but they are something, and so I would encourage that and and to do what you can to take that step back and that wide angle view to not allow yourself to get yourself down, you know, to understand that this is a drag and it, it feels like a drag because it is, 
and that step by step we'll move our way through it and, and get to the other side. Well, the institution, and thank you for that. That was wonderful advice. The institution does have a responsibility to supporting students um, during this period, well, period. Yes. Um, now, before, and, and in the future. Um, one of the things that we've heard is that, you know, students are, are, are concerned about um, their mental well-being, issues around affordability. They're not on campus, they're not working, they may have lost income. And I actually wanna go to the first question um, from one of our Travers Fellows, um, Tara Medoff, who's a, a senior at UC Berkeley, who has a question for you about affordable housing. Great. President Drake, my name is Tara Madha, and I'm a senior at UC Berkeley, majoring in political science and history. Many UC students struggle to find affordable housing in order to attend their respective universities. What steps can you and the UC take in order to ameliorate the affordable housing struggle for students? Thank you for taking the time today to answer my question. A very important question. Very nice to have a chance to say hello. Uh, affordable, safe housing is really one of the, uh, as a basic human need. And it's uh, an issue for people around the world, this country. It's certainly an issue for, for California uh, broadly. It's one of the, uh, the real uh, challenges in the state of California. We do a few things to do our, uh, to, to try to help this. For one, we, on all of our campuses, we all the the campus housing that we provide is below market rate, so we have uh, housing that is less expensive than living in the uh, the, the community uh, uh, broadly. And we, in fact, build it for that to, uh, to be the case. We've added in the last um, uh, five or six years, we've added about seventeen thousand more beds on our campuses. And I know that we have plans to add fifteen thousand more beds between now and twenty twenty five. So the our goal there is to have. Um, uh, affordable as we can make it uh, safe, effective housing for students to live on campus when when that's their preference. And 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 again, that um, 17,000 new beds and 15,000 more in the uh, uh, the planning phase uh, to be able to address that. We also um, uh, want to do all we can. You know, we have uh, uh, food pantries on our campuses and other things to help students who are experiencing homelessness or, or find themselves food insecure. Um, we, of course, provide uh, broadband um, and, and, and other types of support uh, to make sure students can stay connected. We understand that with a wide uh, range of students' uh, uh, backgrounds that come to our, our campus, we're very proud, in fact, of the number of Pell students we have, the number of first-generation students uh, we have we have the most diverse class in our history uh, this year. Those that 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 part of our access is something that's very important, and so we do our best to make our campuses supportive, safe places for our students to be. It's one of the reasons that we are working so hard to make the campus safe enough, campus safe enough to invite more students back, because we can do a better job of helping to support them when they're um, with us than we can as they're distributed broadly around the state and, and you know, many of our students live even in other states and other countries. And so our ability to be able to help uh, is uh, enhanced by being able to have students on campus. And we're working hard to try to increase those numbers. You know, uh, President Drake, while you were talking, um, and, and thank you for all you're doing in terms of food and housing um, security, but it, it leads me to, to think about the decisions that are made um, and that are reflected in, in your operating budgets. And you mentioned that you know, $2 billion was a number I heard that um, in lost revenue, some of it has been made up. But you're now working with your chancellors. Um, we don't know where the state will be in terms of um, its budget for the UC. So what are the priorities that you have established? What are the principles that you're asking the chancellors to consider as they make budget decisions? What stays, what goes, what's important and, and fundamental to the public service mission of the UC? You know, we really focus on our core mission and our core mission is the creation and transmission of knowledge, uh, teaching for our students to help them continue to make progress toward their degrees support for our faculty who are doing research, as we mentioned earlier, uh, the research of the type that will help to uh, be able to um, help us deal more effectively with pandemics that, as they come in the future and other things that are, and, and climate change and all the other things that are, are, are critical to our future. So we want to maintain support for our faculty in their teaching and support mission, maintain support for our students uh, in their learning and 
uh, progressing uh, toward their degrees. Those are our, our core missions. We also have a, a, a real core commitment to our very dedicated, uh, uh, really wonderful staff. You mentioned we have uh, 230, uh, 220,000 uh, faculty and staff. The majority of those are, are staff positions. And we, we people have their whole careers with us and uh, really are the backbone of the University of California. And so we've been very committed to doing all we could to protect uh, the, those people who are working with us. Many are able to work at, uh, at do their work remotely during this time and work at home. Some have jobs that don't lend themselves well for that. And we've really worked hard to try to protect those people and those jobs. We've done reassignments or trainings or other kinds of things and worked to do the best we can to keep that workforce whole. Those are things that I speak to the chancellors about really is to protecting our core mission and our people. And, you know, if we, if I may say in my, my medical uh, background, you know, when um, you uh, are losing blood pressure, the sort of the higher functions um, uh, uh, don't get supported as much. You may not think clearly, you may black out and, and faint, but you know, your, your, uh, the breathing center and the heart, the things that keep you alive, the, your body kind of focuses attention on making sure that those things uh, that you need to stay, to stay with us that those things are the places that that, that get the, the focus. And so we really want to focus on make, making sure that we protect our core mission so that as we emerge from these difficult times, we can continue to accelerate forward. You know, I've also heard you talk about, and I think you, you mentioned about um, paraphrasing, but that um, there is opportunity that comes out of moments like this and uh, a moment of crisis. I want to turn to... Um, sort of the, the second big issue that emerged across American society this year, which had to do the, the issues of, of racial reckoning and um, systemic racism in institutions, in higher education. I've heard you use the term, um, it's time for us to be anti-racist. Can, can you talk to the audience about what are the kinds of changes that you would like to see occur within higher ed, perhaps broadly, but at the University of California that tackles these issues of systemic racism that, that may make it difficult. As, as proud as you are about Pell and diverse students, um, campus climate becomes an issue. It's so, so talk to us about um, your thoughts regarding this moment of racial reckoning. It is an important moment of racial reckoning but you know we've grown up in the united states and the the united states has uh, had a a, a a a real issue with race since before its origins this this country the 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 modern version of this country really was built on on the back of of, of racism um, in a profound and, and and these days almost unimaginably unacceptable fashion but it's never really the legacy has never really left us it it it's it's that original sin has been a part of our daily lives uh, for all of my life, all of your life, uh, uh, Monica. And, and we deal with this in lots of ways uh, at work, at home, uh, uh, broadly. It's it's always been there. I've watched over my life um, continual efforts toward trying to come to a reckoning with this and to try to make progress. Most of the time, the progress is slow, uh, small a few steps forward, a few steps back, a few steps forward, a few steps back. Every once in a while, we seem to have an opportunity to take a larger step. I'm hoping that this is one of those opportunities to take a larger step. The recognition uh, for so many people of the, the stark recognition, I guess, of the, the, uh, the social justice, uh, social injustices that are faced by so many people. I'm thinking specifically now of the social injustices faced by African-American men in this country um, all, all along uh, were, were really uh, played out in, in a horrible fashion on videos uh, now. So these things that have been happening or that we might read about or we might not hear about, we now can see. And I think that for millions of people, the stark reality that this is actually happening here in our own country still today and happening time and time and time and time again was enough to make people say, my, my goodness, we really have to do something to try to address this. And, 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 and so we've been talking about things we can do that really are anti-racist. And, and part of that is we are so, it's, it's, it's been baked into our, our, our culture for so long that we, it's like a fish in water, you know, you don't see it. 
uh, uh, for, uh, for, for what it is. There's a joke about fish, you know, saying, how's the water? And the other fish says, what's water? You know, it's just, it's, forget the joke, but, but you don't see it so much because you get used to, well, that's the way things are. That's the way they're supposed to be. And uh, taking a step back and saying, well, gosh, do they have to be that way? I think is part of, of anti-racism. And what can we actually do to make things better? And so we as a university community are continuing with these discussions. We spoke of it today in our uh, monthly Council of Chancellors meetings. We are going to uh, have a symposium after the first of the year to talk about security and safety on campus and what we can do to be exemplars of best practices. These are things we want to do on our campuses where we, again, we want to be exemplars of best practices. We need to do them and live them in our communities. We need to be examples for the rest of the country and honestly the rest of the world and how we can treat each other with respect and, and compassion, um, no matter who our parents were and who we are today. And that's just something for us to work on, work on every day. You know, I remember when um, I was on the board of, of UC Regents and we talked a lot about campus climate. And then um, under my tenure, when I was chair, they adopted um, a statement of principles yes. against intolerance. And, and so there was a foundation there. But it still shows up and students still, um, and, and I'm sure faculty and staff also are dealing with these issues that you described. I'd like to now go to our second question from the Travers yeah. Fellow, um, Katrina Bullock, um, who has a question for you. My name is Katrina Bullock and I'm a junior at UC Berkeley studying political science with minors in education and African-American studies. Many first-generation, low-income students of color struggle with succeeding in university settings due to resource inaccessibility and the reality of imposter syndrome. How can the UC system address elitism at the university level and make a more accommodating experience for non-traditional students seeking higher education? Katrina, thank you, and uh, an extraordinarily important question, and one, again, we work on uh, really every day. It's an interesting thing. We, want, we, we believe very much in access, affordability, and excellence. And by access, I mean that we want to make the university broadly accessible to people from all walks of life, from all corners of California and from other places in the country and, and around the world as, as appropriate. But we really, particularly for California students, we want students who work hard and who've achieved well to be able to aspire to the University of California. We do um, uh, a better job than most in uh, tuition uh, relief. You know that we have uh, programs that neutralize tuition for for uh, families up to eighty thousand dollars a year. So that's you know so tuition becomes um, not a barrier for those families and less of a barrier uh, for uh, families um, uh, just above that uh, level. So we that that that's very important. Um, but. If, if you're the first in your family to go to, to college, if you uh, come from a community that is underrepresented on on our campuses, yes, you will find yourself being a bit unusual. As as for, forgive me, I was in all of the phases of my career. Uh, there, uh, that was just something that was used to. Uh, 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 it, it was something that you sort of got used to. Like I said, the fish and water, you, you get used to there not being people like you around as you move forward. What my colleagues, I hope, and friends and many of us have done is try to broaden things so there are more people who look like us uh, there in our wake than there were in front of us as we arrived. And we hope that, as you mentioned, Monica, the sense of community, that we develop communities that are welcoming and nurturing to our, our students. It's true that and I did work on this, honestly, 30, 35 years ago. It's true that all of us, uh, there's a, a, one of my favorite books, if I can say, is a, a book called The Enigma of Arrival by a writer, V.S. Naipaul, um, uh, uh, a British writer but, uh, from in, of Indian, uh, 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 South Asian Indian origin. But Naipaul wrote a book um, entitled The Enigma of Arrival. And it, it was written about his life and when he arrived from Trinidad, where he was born in England. Uh, to, for his education and then where his life, he led his life until he passed away for many decades. But, uh, you know, all of us, when we arrive someplace that's new to us, uh, feel strange. We've had a, an idea of what it's going to be like in our minds before we get there. But having not been there, that idea is never quite like what the reality of being there is. And we have to go through that growing into and becoming a part of that community. And that is disquieting um, uh, for, for everyone in some way. If you're the first in your family to do that, it's more challenging and uh, more threatening. And you don't know necessarily that everybody else is feeling that way, although that's commonly the case. And 
So we work very much on the campus in orientation and in creating uh, affinity groups and, and places where people can go for support to let you know every student that we ad admit you on purpose, that we that you're a part of our community, you become a part of our university family, and we're there to be able to support you. And, and, and actually our community is better uh, because you're there and, and the contributions you make to the community are critically important. One last thing I'll say, Monica, that you're, the, part of that then means that we have diverse communities and that our students are meeting people who are unlike people that they've grown up with, no matter who they are. They're, each one of us is as different from the other as, as the other is different from us. And one of the big opportunities and one of the big joys that we have is getting to know and find commonality with people from different backgrounds. But that's always um, uh, a challenge and, and can be threatening. And we as a community continually work on making that a safer and, and more rewarding place to be. Yeah, this issue of access in particular, it seemed like 2020 that UC made some giant symbolic and substantive statements about its commitment to access, both in terms of its reflection on the use of standardized testing in admissions, um, also a, a, a very important statement around um, uh, the rollback of Proposition 209 and um, what is now, or as of yesterday, Prop 16 that was on the ballot. Um, that issue around the, the lack of ability to use race, gender, ethnicity in admissions decisions stayed. And, and I think some of us um, are concerned about the original impact of Prop 209 on the UC. And so the question is not just around um, those, those wonderful supports that you have in place once students are on campus, but what can you do to ensure that your admissions policies are actually such that you are able to pull from diverse student populations? Well, something we've been working on really for, you know, for decades, as you know, and uh, I was admissions director of uh, the uh, UCSF um, in the 1990s, and we worked really hard on being able to make those statements. Those, we, we, we wanted to walk the walk, and we'd let others talk the talk. We wanted to actually be doing it. And so a couple of times, we were pleased that we had the most diverse medical school class in the, the country, and also the most selective. And part of our proof point was that it wasn't one wasn't excellence or diversity. It was excellence and diversity. And in fact, diversity made us better and we couldn't be our best unless we had broad access and broad inclusiveness. And then we worked hard on making sure that we could promote people through the ranks. And, you know, we were starting with very little, but it, a step by step, things got better uh, year over year. We're still committed to that. My own, uh, I can just say from my own experience, the last six years, I was a part of a system for a long time working on these things. At uh, my last uh, university, there was really just us, you know, it was, it was one one campus there, but we were able to increase uh, the diversity dramatically, 50% uh, increase in Latinx students over uh, six years, 50% increase in Asian students over six years, roughly 100% increase in African-American students over those six years. And at the same time, uh, interestingly, symmetrically, an 18% uh, increase in four-year graduation rates, the same 18% that happened at Irvine, out of who, who knows where that comes from, but we had a, a terrific uh, increase in four-year graduation rates, an increase in six-year graduation rates, an increase in research funding. So all of the things that we would use to measure success and excellence uh, were up uh, to all-time uh, records. At the same time that we were dramatic, we dramatically increased our diversity and also increased our number of Pell and, and first generation students. So I, my experience, my, my, my lived experience is that a university can continue to raise its profile in all of the academic success and research things that, that we, we care uh, about as we at the same time uh, improve our access and our affordability. I didn't, I'm talking fast now, but I didn't mention that we decreased the number of students who graduated with debt and decreased the number of debt that those students had um, uh, on average so that a given graduating class was graduating with millions of dollars less debt than the classes before it at the same time that we were um, increasing diversity, increasing the number of low and middle income students that we were incorporating. So all, all those things that we want can be done and we can continue to improve them. And, and finally, I'll say that this, 
year's class is the most diverse that we've ever had in, in our history. You know that uh, Latinx students now are the majority or the uh, there were 36% Latinx students and uh, 35% uh, white students in this first year class. The first time a, a, a so-called minority group had, um, had a majority of our first year uh, uh, spots. So we're, you know, we're never finished with that work. We're never satisfied with that work, but the work, it continues to move forward. And and we will, you know, uh, Proposition 16 was one pathway that would have facilitated our uh, addressing these issues but we can't depend on any one pathway to be successful. And I would say again, in a conversation we had earlier today, we are in the day after Proposition 16 wasn't passed, uh, redoubling our commitment to doing what we can to make sure our students, our faculty and our staff are diverse and supported appropriately. We're gonna look actively to make sure that our contracting and other uh, uh, connections with the communities reflect uh, the diversity and the richness of diversity and people who are in our society broadly. And again, it's a daily, uh, a daily quest. So important to have it um, uh, institutionalized in, in both policy and practice. So, so thank you for that. Um, I want to pick up on um, the context of today, the day after the elections. We just talked about Prop 16. Um, yes. It's had a, a, an impact on, I think, everybody. The very first question that came in from the audience in a country that's clearly divided, what role can the university system play in fostering civic engagement and civil dialogue? One of the things I was proud of in this extraordinarily intense, this is election season like none that I've lived through before, uh, the intensity of it. And one of the things that I was proudest of is the work that, um, that our university community has done in getting out the vote, rock the vote, uh, as one effort that uh, we've participated in, but our students are, are voting at higher levels than ever before, roughly double the number of young people voting that would have been the case a decade ago. And so we really were an engaged community during the run-up to the election and through the election. So, I'm, so that's, that's extraordinarily important. Another thing I think that we found uh, in the, during this COVID crisis is that we have to... Uh, work hard to be the example of the people that we want to do, the example of the policies that we believe will work. We, we, we can't wait for someone else out there to tell us what to do and for us to just follow. I think that that's not enough. We're, as when I mentioned our own, the ways that we've dealt with COVID and our, the students are living on our campuses and where campuses have approached this, we've really been pushing uh, at the envelope uh, at the edge of trying to be the exemplars of best practices there, showing others how uh, these things might be done and not really waiting for someone to, to give us uh, direction. And I think when we look at what it means to be a community, what it means to be engaged, what it means to, to heal and to pull people together, that that's something that we need to do as a, as a community. You know, the, the, the country feels so polarized. Mm -hmm. And you, I don't know if everybody is like this. I know lots of people say, I can't believe that anyone is believing or behaving like that. And I'm sure that the other people are saying the same thing. They just seem to be these, these uh, great distances. I have to believe that there's some central organizing principles that can help to pull us back together. And that part of our, our challenge as a community, as a country, is to find what those principles are and, and um and to work on rebuilding the, the trust and faith that we have in each other. We're so much better and stronger when we can work with trust and faith in each other. And I think that everybody, everyone believes that and knows that. We've just been, we, we find ourselves in this place where we have uh, these great divisions that are, are focusing on. And I, uh, I think all of us are going to have to work actively on, again, being that change we want to see, being the, the, that collective society that we want uh, to be. Can you talk about, um, it just seems that the, the public universities, universities in general, but, but a public university should have such a commitment to free speech and, and for um, the dissemination of ideas that may be different than your own. And so talk about the way in which, and the university very recently, I, I remember just up to a couple of years ago was, in the throes of having to really think about um, its relationship to, to free speech on campus. Um, what are your thoughts about that, um, President Drake, and how will you take that forward? You know, I, I think that's a great tradition 
uh, of the United States and a great, but a great tradition of the University of California. We've been leaders and famously around the world leaders in, in free speech and supporting speech. Uh, you know that free speech can be uncomfortable. Uh, it doesn't mean you're supporting, you don't have to support things that you agree with, right? Or, or make it there. You have to create a safe space for people who you agree with. It's creating a safe space for people to be able to express uh, views that you don't agree with and to be able to uh, to be able to listen to those appropriately and process them. And uh, it's been a part of our tradition for years. I certainly believed in it and had many, many hours um, uh, dealing with First Amendment and free speech issues when I was at the Irvine campus. These were issues when I was at my, my last campus. I believe very much that our, uh, and we have a free speech institute that um, was started um, uh, that I now have a leadership role in. It's uh, and, uh, co-chaired by Erwin uh, Chemerinsky and Howard Gilman and wrote a very uh, persuasive book uh, kind of outlining the important roles that universities have in protecting the freedom of speech. And, uh, and so it's been, again, an important part of my role in these um, positions to do what I could to help the university be that platform for sharing ideas. You know, one of the things that's most interesting, I, I think of us as being the platform, as being the, the, the marketplace for the ideas. It's not our job to pick winners and losers or to uh, determine what, it, what it's supposed to be. I think that, in fact, the, the way the First Amendment is written and the way it works out well, it's our job to create a platform for people to share ideas, to listen to each other, to agree or disagree. We want them, when I think of my own values, and we had a series of values that uh, we practiced at, at, at Irvine, I have a bowl with them etched in. Uh, we speak of respect and integrity as being uh, uh, very important values. We speak of passion um, and, and commitment as being very important um, uh, values. We speak of empathy as being a very important value. We speak of intellectual curiosity and wanting to learn as a very important value. We also speak of appreciation of others and the fact that they come from a different experience as being a very important value. Why, does, why, does, why do they think that way? You know, what, is, what would make someone think that way? And taking a step back and wondering how they got there, I think is very important. I will say also in our values, I'm mentioning all of them, the last one we had on the list was fun. And that is that as we're doing all of these things, we're, we're living our lives and we want to make sure that we're, you know, we're doing these things and, and, and able to enjoy ourselves and being engaged with other people. And one of those, uh, those values, the respect and intellectual curiosity, wanting to know and learn and speaking with integrity and, and empathy, those things really uh, support a platform for, for free speech. And we want to try to be good exemplars of that. And, uh, you know, that's, that's again, daily work for us. And we want to continue. I, I, I love that. And, um, you know, I, I believe that you are a, a, a values-based leader that has shown up um, it, certainly in this conversation, but I also know you like to have fun. And so I'm not going to ask you about how it is that you got to be on the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, but you, 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 you taught a class on, um, I think it was the connection between um, civil rights and music. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the three is the civil rights, the Supreme Court, and the music of the civil rights era. And uh, summarizing it very briefly, um, it, it seemed 15 years or so ago that the civil rights era that I'd kind of grown up in and was a part of my, my childhood and growing up was now becoming grandparents' history. It was, you know, going and fading into the, the background. So I thought it'd be great to talk with 18 and 19-year-olds about what it was like to live through those those days. So we began, put together a course on civil rights and uh, uh, and that was great. And one of my undergraduate degrees is in uh, African African American studies. So I had some connection and study these things in college. So it was fun to kind of look back to the things that were really um, uh, current events and contemporary events when I was in college, now we're at history, but wanted to bring those things forward. And then we thought when Erwin Chemerinsky came to Irvine to be Dean of the Law School, 
I'd been teaching with uh, one of our social deans, but I um, wanted to work with Irwin. We got together and, and began to teach the course. And Irwin is, you know, the nation's preeminent um, scholar on the Supreme Court. So we were looking at civil rights, but also the particular role of the Supreme Court and what what role the courts and the laws had to do with with uh, civil rights. What what roles the people coming together in the streets and in communities uh, had to do with civil rights, the civil rights movement, and <clears throat> how did society move? <clears throat> excuse me, move forward. And then I wanted to connect it to real people and how people felt. And so that was the use of the art. You know, artists um, create art because of their personal and political and social circumstances. They write a book or paint a picture to, to mean something or, or share something, or they write a song to share something or communicate something. So we use as our art form uh, uh, popular music from the 1950s and 60s to kind of reflect how the country was feeling broadly, not only music of the civil rights movement, but music of the civil rights era. So we went from the Maguire sisters, who, you know, many people won't remember, but Maguire sisters to Sly and the Family Stone. That was the kind of arc that we took through the uh, popular music. And, and, I, and <clears throat> I'll say it's worked very nicely uh, with the students because some of this music they heard when they were being driven by their parents or grandparents to school in the carpool but when we put it together as an arc, the, the music sort of had a progression during that time that reflected the progression in social consciousness during during that time. And and students have reflected that back to me in their papers and things in ways that was actually touching to me that they really were able to kind of connect with what it was like to be the people writing the music at the time who often, or so the people writing the music and performing it, or the people who were sitting at the lunch counters, or the people who were organizing the movements were often not much different in age than the students sitting in the class, and, and that's a, a great realization for them. So, anyway. A lot of people might say that um, this is a civil rights movement that we see underway in, in the United States. Is there a particular song that you're leaning on, um, President Drake? Is there one that just continues to resonate? I know I got my favorite Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song, but um, what's yes. your favorite song? You know, there, there are lots of them that work in the course that mean a lot, and I ask the students often, uh, the, the song that tends to come most is A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. Mm -hmm. And um, actually the way he, and we talk about the words in the song, but also the way the artist presents the song. And as you listen to the beginning of that song, if I, I was born um, by a river in a little tent. I mean, I won't do it like he did, but the way he, the way the word born seems to come from his very soul out, it's almost like being born as he's reliving it. Um, and it's a, an incredibly touching reflection of what it means to be born into vulnerability, into a world that you're not sure supports you, and to try to make your way forward. And how, you know, it, it's been a long time coming, but a change is going to come. And and I and that um, I don't know, it gives me chills as I think of it again. I so all these years later, it's so important to us. And uh, you know, it's all a long time coming. But with us working together and, and really working on principles of community, a change, a change will come. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, and um, it's been a long time coming to have somebody like you leading the University of California at this moment. And I, I want to ask you, um, what are your, I don't want to say what's your legacy as you think about it, but, but what do you most want to accomplish? What will, what will define your term um, consistent with your values, consistent with um, your who you are. Um, what does what does this mean to you, and, and what 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 do you want to leave um, in terms of your priorities? You know, you said something. I'll give you a virtual hug. I appreciate it. Um, you know, you mentioned values and and how important values have been to me in trying to create a path forward. Values are great when when you're when you're leading there's no one in front of you to follow. There's no, no direction. There's no menu. You have to make decisions. And so I've always found that in those circumstances, trying to know what's important to you and why, and trying to have values, a set of values that you can uh, rely on and, and, and practice consistently helps you to make those decisions, particularly in the times when you can't be certain what's going to happen with the decision. So I, so that was, I, I was touching that you would uh, say that that would be, uh, actually, that's, if someone would think of the things that we've done as being values-driven, I mean, that would be a, a great uh, uh, way toward me being very pleased. I, 
felt that way on my campuses that I would see people behaving in values-driven ways and appreciating that that's what they were doing. It was, it was very touching. And also, I would say that as we do our work well, people who we don't know, who don't even know who we are or care who we are, will have their lives improved. And if we can look at the ways that we have uh, done things that improve the lives of people who don't know who we are and, or, or what we're doing. Uh, Professor Rice from UC Davis um, uh, uh, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine this year, one of four UC-connected people awarding Nobel, receiving Nobel Prizes this year. But for instance, Professor Rice uh, did work that helped to um, uh, discover hepatitis C. People all over the world, once hepatitis C could be identified, and now there's an actual cure for hepatitis C, people all over the world who would have suffered from this, who would have uh, developed hepatocellular carcinoma, who would have died from, uh, they've been sick or died from this, there's now a pathway to make their lives better. What a great contribution that is from our university, the, the uh, CRISPR-Cas9 um, uh, uh, discovery as well, and the things that we might do with that, uh, the discoveries of... The, the, the black hole at the center of our galaxy and what this means to the origins of our, of our galaxy and us. These, this kind of knowledge that we can provide to the world to help people we don't even know uh, live better lives uh, in small ways and large, uh, being a part of that is just a great, is a great privilege. Well, um, it's also the testament to, to the great public university that is the University of California. And we wish you the very best as you take on this leadership role. And so once again, thank you to um, Dr. Michael Drake, um, the new president of the University of California. And I want to mention that this program has been part of the Commonwealth Club series on ethics and accountability, underwritten by the Travers Family Foundation. And we thank you for viewing today. Thank you very much, President Drake. Wonderful to see you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.